Gospel of John, chapter 4. And uh, just hold your place there when you find it for a moment. John's Gospel, fourth chapter. Now, since we are doing this series on notable women of the Bible, it may seem odd to you that I am including in that this unnamed woman in John chapter 4. But actually, it's a wonderful encounter with Christ. And this particular woman's encounter is remarkable for uh, a number of reasons. First of all, this is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus had with anybody uh, in the New Testament. And it is with a woman, significantly. And also, this divine appointment that Jesus obviously and evidently had with this woman of Samaria uh, gave him the opportunity in order to reveal something of himself that he had never ever revealed with such clarity and openness ever before. And then thirdly, given this woman's uh, religious background, which was uh, terrible really, uh, full of untruths and falsehoods and false teaching, and given the, uh, the bad life's choices that she obviously made, as we'll see in a moment, it's remarkable that she so readily was able to grasp what Jesus was saying uh, and receive the good news. And not only that, that because of that, she became a flaming, blazing evangelist immediately. And I think it's also noteworthy for this reason because this woman demonstrates to all of us that no matter how messed up and how dysfunctional a life can be, that Jesus can redeem it. Because with God all things are possible. So to set the scene then for Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman at Sychar's well, let me remind you for a moment who the Samaritans were and why that in itself makes this message uh, I believe a touching and a tender one. Hundreds of years before this, the Assyrians uh, swept into the northern part of Israel and they took away thousands and thousands of men and women from the ten tribes of Israel. And in place of that, uh, they put in their stead thousands and thousands of other uh, foreigners, could we say, aliens, uh, that the conquering army had got from other great wars they had fought and won. Uh, this was a common practice in those days, and the reason, I suppose, for it was that so that the, the stock, if you will, uh, would be watered down, and that... Uh, I suppose that they would lose their national identity with all of these different foreign people coming into their land all at once. That was, the, that was the idea. That was the principle in doing this. And so that was uh, the scene. After some time, of course, uh, the Jews came back from captivity and uh, they came into their land. And lo and behold, these... Uh, by now these half-breeds, and that's how they looked at them as, 
these half-breeds, as it were, had taken over their land. And not only that, but they had stolen some of their precious truths, teaching of Judaism, which was true. And they had mixed that up with all their pagan beliefs, which was patently untrue. And so they had formed this kind of syncretism of a religion that was in parts true, but for the most part was entirely false. And so you can imagine whenever they come back uh, from captivity, how angry they were. Now the Samaritans were quite happy if, if the Jews uh, uh, had a, came alongside them and accepted what they believed. But of course, they were never going to do that. And the Jews in the south, of course, hated them anyway because they saw the corruption in their own uh, religion. And so this was a kind of pick-and-mix religion. Now, you can imagine then the animosity between the Samaritans and between the Jews. Uh, it was legendary. They absolutely hated with a passion each other. There was absolutely no common ground whatsoever. In fact, Jesus here is on a journey from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, to Judea, and any self-respecting Jew making this journey would not, under any circumstance, go through Samaria, which would be the most direct route. It would be in between the two of those areas. Uh, they actually would cross over Jordan and make an out-of-the-way three-day journey, a three-day out-of-the-way journey, rather than actually meet, and perhaps even horror of all horrors, maybe even accidentally touch a Samaritan, because then they would feel actually defiled by that. And that's how far this had gone. This is how much hatred and bitterness there was between these people. And so, Jesus was about to deal a massive blow to this misguided patriotism and racial prejudices and religious elitism that was abounding. And here's what happened. So let's now begin to read uh, John's Gospel, chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, through, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Did you notice that it says in verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria? And the original King James, it says he must needs go through Samaria. And Jesus had must in his life. I must be about my father's business. He had must in his life. And this is one of the musts. And he was doing this because this was a divine appointment that the father had made for him. And he knew that. And so rather than go out of this out-of-the-way journey, he would cut right through Samaria because he had to get to Sychar's well. He had an appointment there with a woman. She didn't know that, but he knew this. And so he comes to Sychar's well, and it tells us that this was 
near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And so I can imagine Jesus now, he's sitting on Jacob's well. It's about uh, midday, sixth hour, according to the Jewish time scale. It's blazing sun coming down. He's on his own. We'll see in a moment he sent his disciples into the town to buy bread. He's on his own and he's waiting for this woman to come, this divine appointment. And he's sitting amongst history, patriarchal history. He's sitting in Jacob's well. And this was the area of ground that Jacob had originally bought when they came into, for when they come into Canaan that he could pitch his tent. It was also the same parcel of ground that he bequeathed to his son Joseph. And you remember how Joseph, how, uh, remember how he rose to be prime minister of all Egypt and then how that uh, eventually Moses was raised up. But before that, Moses had given a commandment that knowing that the children of Israel would be delivered someday, that when you, when you go back to the promised land, please take my bones with you. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Take my bones with you and bury them in the promised land. And so Moses did that. And even though he was carried around in a coffin for 40 years in the wilderness, but eventually they brought him into the promised land. And right here, very close to this well, was the very place that Joseph was buried. And then, of course, it's not too far from Mount Gerizim, again, which there was, can't go into all of this, haven't got the time, but the, there was, the Jews had a religious history also at Mount Gerizim. So Jesus is sitting in the midst of all of this, and no doubt his thoughts is going back to these times, and he, he was very familiar with the times, of course, brought up in a, in a household where he'd be taught the Scriptures. He would know all about this. So he's sitting here, and he's waiting, and it's midday. And then it says, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Isn't this incredible? That somebody said, the one who made the Niagara Falls, the one who made the Pacific Ocean, the creator of the ends of the earth, who made every ocean and sea and river and lake in the world, he's sitting here by a well and he's thirsty. And he's weary from the long walk. Then in verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Typically, the time for drawing water at the well was either early morning or late evening. Before the sun had fully got up and as the sun was setting. That would be the two cooler times of the day. And of course, that would be the busiest times of the day. And because it was the woman's job to carry the water pots, that would be the time when the woman would meet at the well. And this would be a great meeting area. They said in ancient days, that would be the time when young men also would go out to see if they could find a prospective wife. <laughs> but this would be a great area to talk and to share about the things of the day and about their lives and the gossip of the town and all the tittle-tattle that was going on. And evidently this woman, as we'll see her history in a moment, evidently this woman did not want to be around that. She probably felt she had been talked about enough behind her back, never mind her face. And so to avoid all of that gossip and all of those furtive looks that she would get and all of the finger pointing behind her back and all of the nudge and wink-wink that would go on, she wanted nothing to do with that. 
She would wait to midday when nobody would be there. And so she goes out at midday. And when she gets there, lo and behold, to her absolute surprise, there's a man there. And not only that, he's a Jew. <laughs> so how did she know he was a Jew? Well, maybe, maybe by his dress, maybe by those fringes around his garment that he wore, his outer garment, or maybe because he just looked typically like a Jew would look. And of course, when he would speak, maybe by his Galilean accent. But she knew instinctively that he was a Jew, and that wasn't good news to a Samaritan. And being a man also, and being on his own, and her being on his own, her own, this was not good. And so she comes up to the well, probably not trying to catch his eye, maybe slightly turned aside, and then suddenly he speaks to her. And he said, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Hmm. If seeing a Jew there was a shock, <laughs> a Jew asking her for a drink was a bigger shock. I mean, this is absolutely unheard of. Even to talk to this woman and to take a drink from her, would, would any Jew, it would defile them. And here's a rabbi. A very unorthodox, unconventional rabbi, but here he is, and he's asking this woman for a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So you can understand this woman's shock, and you can understand her reaction now. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it the Jew being a Jew? Ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. Note how she is quite pointed about that. Not only you a Jew, but you're asking me, a Samaritan and a woman, for a drink? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's against the rules. Don't you know that? I'm paraphrasing now. So I could imagine her, her answer would be quite sharp and curt, and uh, she'd be agitated, kind of thrown off balance with the scene. And then Jesus, just very quietly, nonchalantly, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Huh. Jesus often answered a question by asking a question or making a comment. And again, this is one of the times when he'd ask a question, he made a comment. And he started talking about living water. Now, in her mind, of course, living water would be fresh, clean, pure, cold, refreshing water that would be at the bottom of Jacob's well. That would be in her mind. That would be her natural thinking. Not at all what Jesus was talking about. Sure it wasn't. We know what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? He's talking about the water of life. In John 7, on that great day, the last day of the feast, 
he stands up and he says, Anyone thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And this he said, talking about, of course, the Holy Spirit. And so, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? The well was over 100 feet deep, cut out of solid limestone by Jacob and his men all those years ago. It was the best water in that whole area. It was sweet, it was cool, it was refreshing, it was pure, it was spring-like. But the problem was, he needed a very long rope to get to the bottom of it. Now, many times travelers, they'd carry a little leather pouch or bucket with them that they could fold up with a, with a rope attached so that if he came to well, they could dip in. But she looked at him and he had neither a bucket or a rope. And so she was a bit flummoxed, as we say. So, the well is deep, you have nothing to draw with. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. Now, a couple of things here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Actually, not only was he greater than Jacob, but a greater than Solomon was here that she just hadn't recognized yet, but she would presently. Are you greater than, than our father Jacob? Now, that wasn't quite true for a Samaritan. But I want you to note here, Jesus is on a soul-winning mission here. He could have quibbled over that. Here's a lesson for us, by the way. He could have quibbled about that because she didn't quite get that right. She might have been half true, but it wasn't the whole truth. And he could have quibbled and argued about that, but he didn't. And sometimes if you're witnessing to somebody and they know a wee bit about the Bible, be very careful that you don't just try to correct every single thing they say. Because they'll just shut up. Because you'll just seem like a know-all to them. So he just let that slide past. He could handle that. It wasn't a big issue with him. So, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now that is as clear as the nose in your face to us. We know exactly what he's talking about. We've experienced that. And we have the advantage of hindsight. She didn't. And remember her religious upbringing. All that confusion and falsehood and stuff that she's taught from a little girl. So she wasn't quite fully yet grasping what he was saying. But she was attracted to it. She was very, very interested in it. You notice now how she's calling him sir rather than a, you're a Jew. She's mellowed a bit. He's being gentle with her. And he, he's, in a sense, teasing something out of her here in a very gentle way. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water 
that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Sir, let me paraphrase, whatever it is, this living water you're talking about, whatever it is, and however you're going to get it, and however you're going to give it to me, I want it. <laughs> she didn't know everything. Sure she didn't. But she was getting, she was getting thirsty. For whatever he had, she was wanting it. And that's always good when you're witnessing to somebody. If you can get them to that place where they don't understand, they don't have to understand everything, but they're getting thirsty for what you're talking about. Whatever it is you've got, they're beginning to want it. And that's always good when they get to that place. So, Jesus said to her initially, give me a drink. Now she said to him, you give me the drink. See how he's turned the tables here. But now we're getting to the crux of the matter. And now Jesus is about to put his finger on an area in her life. Look what happens. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. <laughs> now everything is going level along swimmingly to this point. But now he drops a bombshell. So he said, and, and it seems unrelated, doesn't it? But it actually isn't. It's very related. So he said, go call your husband and then come here. Both of you come here. And I can, I can imagine the woman at that point because, <laughs> I mean, this would just throw her. And I can imagine her at that point, her knowing her history, I can imagine her kind of maybe just Maybe just looking away and maybe just saying, I don't have a husband. I, I can imagine her just not wanting to look into his eyes and just slightly turning and saying, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd have been in that woman's position right there, I think the hairs would have stood in the back of my neck. And I think my heart would have begun to beat out of my chest because suddenly I'm standing in front of somebody who knows every detail of my life. And has just exposed it to me. See, Christ knows the heart of every single person. He knows every heart in this room tonight and every heart that's listening to the sound of my voice. He knows every life issue, every detail, every hidden detail. He knows all about it. You have had five husbands. And the one you're cohabiting with, he's not your husband. But he said, at least you're honest. You said you had no husband. Now, I don't believe you said it in a condemnatory way. But she needed to face the issue. And let's stop for a moment and think about this lady. That does not mean that she was an adulteress. In fact, she had been an adulteress. 
She probably had been stoned to death long ago because the law says an adulteress should be stoned. Some of those husbands may have died for all we know. But more than likely, because of her going at midday, because she didn't want to face the wagging tongues, more than likely, her marriages did not work out. Now, you have to remember in, in Christ's day, because Christ talked about this, in Christ's day, divorce, men could divorce one for, for just about any reason. Not for any biblical reason, but they had all kinds of reasons themselves. And they could just root out a bill of divorcement. If they'd catch a woman or a wife talking to another man on the street, and they didn't like that, they could write out a bill of divorcement. They wore their hair, their ladies wore their hair up publicly. If she took her hair down and went outside, they could write a bill of divorcement. They had all kinds of reasons to get rid of their wives. And here's a woman, and she's gone through five husbands. Five times this woman longed for, wanted some man to love her, appreciate her, protect her, provide for her, and every single time she was let down. And she was dumped. I'm not saying that she was a perfect wife. I'm not saying she hadn't got her own faults and mistakes. But her man just left her. Now you would have thought after the second, after the third, after the fourth, you'd have thought, well, it's not working for me. <laughs> it's not working for me. I'm not very good at this. Whatever reason, they just leave me. But this woman was so desperate. She did not want to be alone. And you have to understand that a woman alone in those days was tough. Economically, it was tough. It was very difficult to be on your own. You can see that in the story of Ruth and Naomi and so forth. Very, very difficult. So you needed a man, particularly a husband or a brother or somebody, even an uncle, somebody to provide for you. So she just did not want to be alone. And no doubt she went from one man to another. She, she put that disappointment behind her, hoping and praying the next one would work out just fine. Maybe this next guy, he looks good. He's saying all the right things. He's promising me everything. Maybe this will be the one. And it wasn't the one. And she goes through one, and she goes through two, and three, and four, and five. And it didn't work. And still, still, she finds another man. She finds another man. Only this time, she's had enough of marriage. This time, she's not just going to go through all that divorce business all over. She's done that five times. She's not going to have any more of that. Thank you very much. No, no. If he leaves me this time, well, at least there'll be no bill of divorcement. He can just go and that'll be it. I'll just live with him. Who cares? Sure, they talk about me. And the whole town's talking about me. What difference is it going to make? I think that's the place she'd gotten to. But you see, this was an area that Jesus put his finger on. Because this thirsting and longing and yearning in her life for love and appreciation and, and all the things that a, that a woman or any man wants in life, she wasn't getting. And she never was going to get it not with the people that she was meeting. By the way, Jesus was the seventh man in her life. Seven's the perfect number, isn't it? 
And then she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> and let me tell you something about this Martin religion. They only ever accept it from Judaism. They only ever accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They did not accept the Psalms. They did not accept the writings. They did not accept the prophets. Didn't accept them. But here's this woman saying, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. There's something underneath in this woman. And we'll see this beginning to come out. There's something, something deep down underneath all of that dysfunction and all of that messed up life and all of that wrong choices she's taken, all the trouble she's been in. There's something underneath all of that that Jesus is teasing out. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, you'll find if, you, if you're witnessing the people, and it's particularly somebody that's interested, you've got them to the stage where they're interested. You've really, really got their attention. And they're seeking what you've got, like this woman. Almost every time you'll get to a certain place in the conversation, we'll hit a hot button. You had a hot spot in her life, and immediately they'll try to divert you. You find out, haven't you? They'll change the subject. This is exactly what this woman did. But what she did, I believe, is more than just a diversionary tactic. It was that. Because, I mean, he was really, really, really touching the buttons here, wasn't he? So she was deflecting it a little bit. But I think it also reveals something about this woman also. In spite of all of her lifestyle and all the stuff that was going on, I think that she had a real interest in spiritual matters. And I think that she was a woman who had read and perhaps had listened and maybe had studied to some degree about their history. Because she says... Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, this was a great debate in those days between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so a part of her is, is deflecting him. It's a diversion, kind of a smokescreen. But another part of it, deep down inside, she's thinking, hey, this man's a prophet. If anybody can tell me the answer to this question, everybody wants to know this answer. If anybody can tell me the answer to this question, surely it'll be this man. And so she says, well, can I paraphrase? Well, you know our history. You know the big debate amongst us all. Is it this mountain or is it Jerusalem? Surely you would know that. I, I'm paraphrasing. Surely you would know that. I mean, you're a prophet, aren't you? It's interesting the answer Jesus gives here, by the way. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you, know, you will neither on this mountain, that's, that's Gerizim, which was their main place of worship, you will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. 
She, notice, she talked about our fathers worshipped. But notice what he's doing. He's directing her from that ancient history on to right now. And he's talking about the Father. See how he's always getting her back on track again? And when you're witnessing the people and try to divert you, there, there are ways, very nicely, that you can get them back on track again. Hey, this is between you and God here. Let's, let's get to the heart of the subject. Now, when Jesus said this, that neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, Jesus is very conscious of a couple of things. First of all, these Samaritans, they had previously had a temple at Mount Gerizim, Sambalat, remember the enemy of Nehemiah, he built that, but the Jews destroyed it. And also Solomon's great splendid temple had, that the Jews had had also been destroyed but had been rebuilt but never to the full grandeur that it had been. It was quite disappointing from what it used to be. And Jesus is also conscious because he is a true prophet as well as the Son of God. He's also conscious that even the very temple that the Jews do have, that one day, in fact, he prophesied about this later on, that one stone would not be left upon another. And in AD 70, Titus, the Roman, came in and destroyed it. You know that. History teaches that. So in a sense, Jesus said, listen, don't get hung up on, on where to worship. What you should really be concerned about is whom you worship. The Father. That's the important thing. These temples will come and they'll go, but it's the Father that we have to worship. And so Jesus is teaching her something here. And then he said, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. And that was true, because they didn't have the truth. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Which is also very true. By the way, that's a great truth for us as Christians to remember today. Salvation came through the Jews to us. Christ, the Savior, came through the Jews to us. But then he says, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, note this, in spirit and truth. For the Father is sick and such to worship Him. Judaism was largely a religion of laws and rules and regulations and rites and symbols and ceremonies. In fact, the Ten Commandments were not enough for them and they had hundreds of other commandments and laws to try to hedge in the Ten Commandments to try to keep them safe. So their whole lives was laws and rules and regulations and rites and symbols and, and, and ceremonies and all that stuff. But no spirit. It's all law, no spirit. But on the other hand, the Samaritans, they didn't have any truth. Very little. And what they have is mixed up with error. So Jesus is saying, listen, the day is coming when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, now here's another indication that this woman had much more in her than what you could see on the surface. 
And I think this is why the Father made this divine appointment with the Son to meet this woman. Because he knows the hearts of people. Remember when Philip was out having a revival in Samaria later on? You remember how the Ethiopian eunuch was out in the wilderness in Gaza? And he was on his chariot and he was reading the scroll of Isaiah. had no idea what it meant. And God spoke to Philip and says, Get down to the desert and go attach yourself to that chariot. And he did, and he explained what that actually meant, and that man got saved. Because God knew what was in his heart. He was seeking, he was searching. And I believe this woman was the same. She was seeking, she was searching, she wanted reality. She wanted freedom. She was thirsty and hungry for something, and she wasn't finding it in her life, and she wasn't finding it in her marriages, and she wasn't finding it. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, understanding that the Samaritans only had the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the books of the law, and there are parts of that where the Messiah is hinted at, implied. But she would need it to have been quite astute to pick up on that. Or maybe, and we have no evidence of this, but maybe, even though they did not believe the prophets, but maybe she did. She certainly believed he was a prophet and told him. Maybe she read the prophets. And the prophets would clearly, clearly show that Messiah would come. And then on top of all of that, John the Baptist had arrived. And I mean, the whole country was talking about John the Baptist. And what was he? He was the forerunner of Messiah. He said, there's one who is before me. Preferred before me. He says, I'm not even worthy to loose his shoes. And he was talking about the Messiah that would come. And so here's this woman, and in her heart of hearts, I think that she's longing for Messiah to come. So, so there's, some, there's some level down in here of, of searching and looking and longing and some understanding, even though she was confused and mixed up her background. But deep down in there, all of that there, God has got something to work with here. So she says, I know that when Messiah is, Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. I wonder at that point, because she's already called him a prophet, I wonder at that point, did it fleetingly go through her mind, hey, I wonder is this Messiah? She had never ever met a man like this man, and she had never met a Jew like this Jew, and she had certainly never met a prophet before. But she was coming quite close to the truth here, wasn't she? Verse 26. You should underline this, by the way. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, this is the first time that Jesus ever clearly, plainly, unreservedly nailed his colors to the mast and said, I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. I am Messiah. In fact, if you notice in your, well, 
it'll be in yours too. If you notice, I who speak to you am he. If you notice the he is in italics. Did you notice that? Which means that the translators put that in there because to try to make more sense of it. But actually it made a lot of sense as it was because he was saying, I am. Moses said, Lord, if I go to the children of Israel and say, who, who will I say sent me to them as a deliverer? And what did the Lord say? You say, I am has sent you. I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. That was the great name of God. So Christ is revealing to this woman that he is God in the flesh. He'd never done that ever to anybody before. Now he alluded to it. He hinted at it. But he'd never come right out and said it. You say, well, what about the time whenever, whenever Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this, but my Father in heaven. Do you know what he said to them right after that? He said, don't tell anybody about it. Don't tell anybody about this. But he wasn't the one who said it in the first place. In fact, the only other time he actually said it as clear and as plainly as this was at his trial before Caiaphas. When Caiaphas said to him, Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? He says, I am. I am. <laughs> as clear as you like, I am. But here he's saying it to this Samaritan woman. Amazing. That she would be the one that God would choose his son to reveal his Messiahship to. A woman and a Samaritan woman to boot. Of course, Christ loved the Samaritans, didn't he? I who speak to you am he. And then at this point, verse 27, his disciples came. Now, we don't know exactly, it says, at this point. So we're not sure how much they heard of this conversation. I wonder if they hear her saying, you know, when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. I wonder if they hear him saying, that's me. I'm Messiah. I'm here. We don't know. But it says they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Do you know that traditional rabbis, do you know that they were not allowed to speak openly and publicly to a woman? That even if their own mother or wife or daughter even if they met them going down the street, they would have to walk on past and not speak to them. So they marveled. He's speaking to a woman. And he's on his own. And she's on her own. And she's a Samaritan. <laughs> I mean, it was quite unorthodox, wasn't it? But of course, them knowing him would know instinctively there would be nothing improper going on here. Didn't know what was going on, but they would know it wouldn't be improper. Be unorthodox, but not improper. So they didn't say. They just wondered. 
Then the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? The King James says, Is not this the Christ? It's much more emphatic than that. Is not this the Christ? Did you see the progression in the story here? Where she starts out calling him a Jew. But then, sir. And then, you're a prophet. And then, Messiah. Now, the Christ. You see how in this short conversation, because this, this would take moments. Do you see how that Jesus turned the whole situation around and you can see her eyes beginning to open. The eyes of her heart were beginning to be opened and enlightened until suddenly she realized this is the Christ. He said it. And at that moment, she received him. Put it into our terminology, she got saved. And what did she do? She immediately became a soul winner. You know, the best soul winners are people that's just saved because they're just full of it. They just want to talk about it. They just want to tell somebody. <laughs> Their life has just dramatically changed. They've got to tell somebody this. So she goes to the man. It's notable she didn't go to the woman. Had enough of their chit-chat. So she goes to the man. She didn't care anymore anyway. She got some good news to share. And it says, They went out of the city and came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Therefore his disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Well, they're a bit slow, aren't they? <laughs> of course, we're not slow. Sure, we're not. We're not spiritually dull. I mean, we just get that right away, don't we? It's because we're reading it and have the benefit of hindsight, but we're not so quick all the time. Sure, we're not spiritually. Sometimes we're a bit slow and dull, aren't we? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this saying is true, the saying is true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, but you have entered into their labors. Now, there's a whole principle here when it comes to us winning souls. Anybody you will ever have the privilege of leading to Christ, the chances are that at that moment you're probably, you're probably the last link in the chain. Probably. Somebody's already talked to them. Somebody's prayed for them. Somebody sowed a seed. Somebody's given a tract. Somebody's given them a book. Somebody shared a Bible verse. They've been thinking about it. Wondering about it, you come along, you share, you pop the question, and they say, Yes, you reaped, but perhaps you weren't the one that sowed. 
In Christ's instance, he was the one who did so. It was a very quick harvest that was about to come, by the way. Sometimes the harvest takes a long time. So whether one sows or whether one reaps, at the day of rewards, the sowers and the reapers will rejoice together, Jesus said. Paul talked about that, didn't he? One sows, one waters, but God gives the increase. And, verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Never underestimate your personal testimony. That's all this woman had. Come see a man who told me all things ever I did. Is this not the Christ? That's all she had. That's all the theology she had. That's all she got. But it was enough to become a soul winner. Because that was her personal testimony. Jesus had turned her life upside down, inside out. <laughs> that was enough to share to anybody. All of us has got a different testimony. All of us has a different journey of faith. Some are more dramatic than others. But nonetheless, your testimony is important. Revelation 12 and 11, they overcame him. Satan, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by what? And by the word of their testimony. Very, very important, your testimony. We probably do not share it enough. So many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know, note this, that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Nobody had ever called him that. The Savior of the world. Who's doing it? The despised Samaritans. <laughs> it's amazing how Christ can get through to somebody. No matter what their background is, no matter what their upbringing has been, no matter all their life's mess they've gone through, Christ can get through to people and change them. Even though they were despised. I remember years ago, up in Claremont, I was going around the doors, knocking on doors and sharing with people about the love of God. And I knocked on this door. It was getting about seven in the evening, starting to get a little bit dark. I was knocking on the door. A young woman came out, a young lady with a child. And we get chatting and lo and behold, she was a believer. So as believers, you talk about things of God, you talk about church. And I said, look, love, lovely talking to you. It's great that you're a believer. But I says, it's getting dark and I want to knock a few more doors here. So please excuse me. Uh, I'm going next door. And she says, oh, don't go next door. Oh, no. I says, don't go next door. I says, why? Oh, she says, there's a rough crowd. <laughs> a rough crowd. She says, no, no, I wouldn't go next door. And I says, well, I can hardly pass it by because, I mean, if they see me at you and then a pass them and go to the next door. It wouldn't look too good, would it? She says, well, I wouldn't bother if I was you. 
And she closed the door, and I, I, of course I had to go, and I had a little bit of apprehension going, you can imagine. And I was even more apprehensive when the door opened for this. There's a great big guy comes out with black hair down to his shoulders, leather jacket on, his nose all twisted, earrings everywhere. He's about six foot three. And he looked at me, and I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> he says, can I help you? And I said, like I said to everybody else, I says, well, my name is David, and I've just come tonight. If you give me a few moments of your time, I just want to share the love of God with you tonight. He says, okay. I remember him as well. He leaned up against the door jam. He says, okay, go ahead. And for the next 15 minutes, I just shared the love of God and about Jesus and about the cross and about Calvary, everything. You know what he said then? He says, thank you very much. It's just thank you. Appreciate that. And I shook hands with him and I left. I don't know if he ever got saved or not. But hey, he wasn't the big ogre that Mrs. Christian next door thought he was. It's obvious that she had never, ever witnessed to that man. And you see, Jesus saw beyond all of this stuff about the Samaritans. He loved the Samaritans. He really did. He told that wonderful parable about the good Samaritan. Of course, he knew it would get the Jews back up when he said that, and it did. But he loved them. And so the Samaritans had come to him. They urged him to stay with them. He stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said, Now we believe because of what you, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Three years from that conversation, the church on the day of Pentecost was born. Remember what Christ told his disciples? Go into all the world and make disciples. Where did he tell them to go to? Jerusalem? Judea? Where else? What? Samaria. And into the uttermost parts of the earth. Samaria. Philip had a great revival in Samaria. I told you about that a moment ago. I don't know whether any of the disciples ever went to Sychar. But if they did, you can be sure they got a great reception. And I'm sure there was a lot of believers still after three years, maybe a lot more believers by then in that area. It all started by this remarkable woman with all of her feelings and faults and messed up life. But deep down inside, she was reaching out, longing and yearning for truth, for reality, for a thirsting for something that she didn't have in life. And God the Father made a divine appointment with his son to meet this woman at the well. And her life was never the same. And I'm absolutely convinced that she became a soul winner for the rest of her days. Devoted to Jesus. Let me close with this. I wonder what she said when she went home to your man. <laughs> I imagine you kind of go in and say to him, do you know, Abe, I met another man today and I've got a new man in my life <laughs> and he's wonderful. 
I could imagine Abe's chin dropping on the floor at that point. In fact, he's so wonderful, I want you to meet him too. Because he's changed my life forever. And by the way, we can no longer live together. Because that just would not be right. So we'll either get married or, I'm sorry, Abe, goodbye. <laughs> I don't know if that happened or not, but just give me a preacher's license, but I'd like to think something like that happened. She had to tell him something, didn't she? Isn't that a great story, isn't it? I mean, isn't the Bible a wonderful, wonderful book, isn't it? You just send to somebody this morning, you know, you read it for years and years and years, and then you see things you've never seen before. Because it's just a living word, isn't it? It's just, you know, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book, isn't it? I think she's a great wee woman, isn't she? Eh? Glory to God. Amen. Good. Amen. All right, well, God willing, next week, Sunday morning, uh, at the very least, and probably Sunday night, we shall look at two more of these Bible characters and see what we can uh, glean from them. Amen. Maybe you have one a favorite that you're wanting me to speak about. I don't know. Probably everybody's got a different one they would like to think about. But uh, I'm working behind the scenes on a whole lot of them. So amen. All right. So the Lord bless.